Amen. Welcome, church. Big plans tonight or what? Me either. Me either. I'm going to do the same thing I did last night. Like, stay up till 10, watch like two episodes of Yellowstone and go to bed. Like, that's, that's about as epic as it gets. I don't think I've stayed up till midnight on New Year's Eve since my kids were born. It's just, once you have kids, it's just not worth it. It's just not worth it. But bless you if you're having a lot of fun tonight. Um, I get to preach this morning to close out the year. What a beautiful time to be in church. So, the Bible is a library of 66 books written over 1,500 years by around 40 different authors, including priests, poets, kings, rabbis, doctors, prophets, fishermen, and shepherds. It is composed of multiple genres, from historical narrative, poetry, personal letters, apocalyptic prophecies, parables, instructional booklets and design guides, moral, civil, and ceremonial laws, and philosophy or wisdom literature. Yet, despite all of this, the Bible has a beginning and a middle and an end. There's lots of ways to divide up scripture, uh, analyzing the big story, decoding the mysteries of the Bible. These are not mutually exclusive to each other. They can overlap and coexist. So when I say the Bible has a beginning and a middle and an end, I mean that the lens with which we're going to look at the Bible today is one of a beginning, a middle, and an end. You might hear other scholars divide up the Bible in different ways. They're all beautiful ways to do it. But I think that today... We can overlay this lens, this framework over scripture and find something beautiful. Three acts, beginning, middle, and end. I think if we understand these three acts, we actually get a framework for understanding all of life, the whole of creation, our relationship to God, and the role we have to play within it all from now until eternity. And if that doesn't spark your imagination even a little bit, then you have my absolute permission to take a nap for the next 30 minutes. Just wait. The band, they're going to come back on stage. They're going to be loud. They're going to wake you up. It's going to be like an alarm. Seriously, it's a win-win situation. Either I'm going to say something worth listening to, or you get to catch up on some much-needed rest and get ready for tonight. Cannot lose. I don't want to be too cheesy, but today is New Year's Eve. We are on the cusp of a new year a fresh start and a new beginning. What a timely moment to be in church. So today, I hope that if you are longing for direction, you will find it. If you're disillusioned with life, if you're wondering what is the point of waking up for another day on an endless cycle of repetitive days, if you are out of ideas, lacking inspiration, if you are bored with the vision of your own life, if you don't understand the Bible, or Jesus, or God, or yourself, if you are looking for a new way to live, I hope that today is a beautiful moment of God speaking light into the darkness and awakening you to a new possibility of life with him. And so, three acts, beginning, middle, end, garden, temple, city. This is our framework today. But we're going to do a little bit of a Tarantino edit of these three acts to keep us on our toes. So we're going to start in the beginning, we're going to go to the end, and then we're going to go to the middle. So we're going to flip a couple of our acts just to, just to keep us limber, you know, keep the tension going. So let's get started. 
You might find around you, under you, in a seat somewhere, a Bible. If you don't have one, that is a gift for you. You may take it home. But we've started a new tradition around here at the end of 2023 where we stand for the reading of Scripture. So if you want to grab a Bible or you can read from the screen, will you please stand with me? We're going to be in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. That is the very beginning of your Bible. It is at the far left. It is essentially the first page that isn't, you know, indexes. Genesis 1 verse 1. Now we're going to read the whole chapter. So like if you have if you have weak knees, you can sit. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Oh man, if you, you can read along with me if you want to, or you can do it in your head. I have no preference. We've never had that happen before, but I love it. <laughs> totally up to you. And, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years and let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser night to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. 
God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. You guys can go ahead and be seated. Congratulations on reading an entire chapter of the Bible. (laughs) So much to unpack, but let's start at the beginning on the final day of the year. Let's go to the beginning. Firstly, the opening line of all of Scripture, in the beginning, God. Before anything else, there is God. Before creation has begun, God. Outside of the created universe, God. He is before all things. He is the originator and creator of everything that is to come. That is how the Bible starts. Then God gets on with making stuff. But what happens specifically here? which is unlike other creation myths and stories that every other culture has, is that when God makes stuff, he makes things in an order. We actually, like, we actually get a kind of pyramid of ascending complexity and value as God moves through the moments of creation. He begins by making things, Lifeless matter, earth and water and carbon and light, rocks and elements and minerals, the building blocks and raw materials of the universe. Then he progresses to vegetation, unconscious life. These things live and breathe, kind of, and grow and reproduce and expand and change. They are more complex than what came before. But God reaches further, and he makes fish and beasts and mammals and birds. We get living creations that not only breathe and grow and reproduce and expand and change, but they can make decisions and relate to each other. And finally, God reaches the pinnacle of his creation on the the fifth fifth day of creation, sixth day of creation? Sixth. Uh, We've been building and building towards his masterpiece finish, his flourish, his crescendo, his magnum opus, his statement piece of unrivaled complexity and infinite value, and finally, God makes people. All of the creation story builds and points to this moment. As we read it, you heard the repetition of there was evening and there was morning and God making things according to their kinds and God sees them and they're good and we get this repetitious cycle that moves and builds and builds and builds, literally like an orchestra building to a crescendo. And we get people, this moment, living, breathing, growing, changing, relational, decision-making creatures 
Only unlike anything that has gone before, it is, this is what God says about these things, these people. He says, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. The final crowning achievement of God's creation is he makes living creatures that are like him with the ability to do what he does to create and to rule. God makes a world and he makes it in a specific order as a guideline for how it all works in harmony. It's a guideline for how we should value things. It's in order. Things, plants, animals, people. And then we have this beautiful poetic picture of how God fits into this. Because you may be tempted to finish this little pyramid by putting God at the top, but scripture actually doesn't do that. See, God is described as being there before all of creation. And then in Genesis chapter two, we do get the seventh day of creation, and it's a Sabbath day, a holy day of rest, a moment where God is described as resting from the work of his creation. He takes a step back and is momentarily removed, holy, and set apart from everything that he has created. He takes a moment because God is not the pinnacle of the creation pyramid, he transcends it. He is before it and he is after it. He is the sustainer of it, the foundation of it, the creator of it, the upholder of it. He is other than it, unlike it, and beyond it. He cannot be measured or held or bound by it. If you try to chart on a graph the value and complexity of all that exists, God breaks the scale. He isn't the pinnacle of all that exists. He is the beginning and the end of all that exists. This is the created order. The Bible has a term for this. It's called shalom, a created order of total harmony and holistic peace. Our job, as given to us by God in Genesis chapter 1, is then to rule the earth and all that is in it, to subdue it, to have dominion over it, order it, be fruitful within it, aka our job is to do what God does, be creative and keep order, keep shalom. He makes us as many versions of himself to take care of the earth, to nurture and tend to the garden. If all of creation is a garden, then we are the gardeners. We are called to take care of the plants and the animals and to live in harmony with them, to take the raw resources of the earth and turn them into something more stunning. Notice, in Genesis chapter 1, God does not give mankind a finished civilization. He gives them a raw, unfinished garden full of potential, of things he's created. And he tells us to take those ingredients and to reorder them in harmony with his rule and his order. We can take clay and turn it into bricks. We can take blocks of marble and turn them into sculptures. We can take the pigments of flowers and turn it into paints. We can take trees and turn them into bridges and houses. We can take a wild path and turn it into a trail. We can take 
ore and melt it down and purify it into metal and forge it into wondrous things. We can take wood and we can burn it to create a warm place to gather and to cook our food, to share our stories. We can then take the charcoal from the fire once it is cooled and use it to draw, make art, write down ideas, pass them on so that each generation can build its floor on our ceiling. This is the calling within the created world, to be submitted to God as the ultimate creator and ruler, and to then rule and order and create within this limitless sandbox called earth. There is a harmony woven into all of it, everything in its right place. But it does not stay that way for long. Because people evidently don't want to rule with God under his authority. We want to do things our way, which is usually something like this. If we reorder this, this is how I think most of us will usually do things. <laughs> we take the place of God. Nothing's more important than things, material possessions, wealth. Uh, dogs get a carve out from the other animals, right? There's like food and then there's dogs. And that, honestly, that part, we might be onto something. Like that part, we might be onto something. Then we put people, then plants and animals, and then we are, again, the sustainer, creator. We're the gods of this creation that we built. This is what we call sin. I know that's a naughty word in modern society. We don't like to think of ourselves as sinning. Sinning is usually, if we have grew up in church, often for some of us, this was... Sin was the arbitrary rules that if you break, God gets mad at you and you don't understand why and it can f make you feel just like an evil person that you don't really get this connection with why you're an evil person. It's a pretty brutal definition of sin. Let me give you a better one. Here's a simple de definition of sin. Sin is the wrongful reordering or devaluing of all that exists. It is the breaking of shalom. When we value things more than people, or we make ourselves the God figure in the equation, if we destroy the beauty of the earth in search of wealth, when we put ourselves before others or even exploit others for personal gain, when we treat something that God has created as good and treat it as disposable, when we enact injustice, we reorder the garden in a way that leads to death, chaos, and pain, for ourselves, others, and creation itself. But we have a responsibility to steward and protect and care for everything in creation because it has all been declared good. So we started off so well, this beautiful vision of life, and we ruined it. We burned down the forests, we ravaged the land, we sold our brothers and sisters, we exploited the poor. We scorched the earth and depleted the resources. We used our creativity to invent new ways to hurt each other. And we used our gifts to find ways to take God's order and to manipulate it, like pulling on the threads of a tapestry until it unravels in places and tangles in others or bunches up and distorts, scrunched together until the image of beauty is unrecognizable from its intended design. We were supposed to build something beautiful together, a kingdom of light and goodness, but instead we built a kingdom of man, 
a kingdom of darkness. This is the beginning, the garden, act one of the story. For act two, we actually just need to skip to the end. So, you know, it's act three, but it's in the middle. Act two, the whole thing isn't always going to be broken. There is hope, there's redemption, there is an end destination that is worth knowing about. You ever watch a movie that's just so depressing, you're like, I don't know if I want to finish it because if the end is going to be as depressing as the start, what's the point? This is not that story. If we go to the very, very end of the Bible, if we go from the very first chapter of Scripture, what if we look at the very end and the final passage of Scripture? What if we go from the beginning to the end? How fitting on New Year's Eve to go from the beginning to the end, the end to the beginning. And so we'll look at Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. If you have a Bible, go to the far, 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 far right. I'm not going to make you stand for this one. I'm just going to read it, but it will be on the screens as well. This is a vision of the end. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no, de- no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. This is the vision of where we are headed. Our end destination is this, a new creation where the old order of things has passed away, our order, our broken, disjointed, unharmonious, rebellious reign will come to an end. The fruit of our reign will come to an end too, death and mourning, crying and pain. And once again, we will find ourselves dwelling with God, living under his rule in perfect Shalom. Where was the last time we saw this? A place where there was no brokenness or pain or death, where God literally dwelled with his people, not separate from them, where God's order rather than our order order is the law of the land. Last time we saw this was in the garden, in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, the very beginning of the entire story, and there is a vision of it again at the conclusion. We can go back a slide. That's for later. Spoilers. (laughs) What we see in Revelation 21 
is that the end will be like the beginning. The beginning will be like the end, and the God who is the beginning and the end will make it so. Only here's the difference. What started in a garden will end in a city. The new creation is the culmination of the cultivation of the original creation. Let me say that one again. Tongue twister. The new creation is the culmination of the cultivation of the original creation. A city here is the picture of what happens when you take the raw resources of a garden and do the most spectacular things with them. One theologian put it like this, what is a city but a lot of well-organized gardens? This is what God has always wanted us to build together, to take Eden in its wild form, pregnant with potential and possibility, and build a heavenly city. Now, our minds might rightly buck at the idea of this. In what world is a city a vision of paradise compared to a garden? Well, that's because when we build cities, we build them our way. Cities, for all of their spectacle and beauty and diversity and progress, and hear me out, I I live in a city. We live in a city. I love LA. We live in one of the biggest cities in the world. I am in love with LA. But man, it's messed up. It's messed up. But here's the thing. Cities are full of beauty and wonder and progress and fabulous, fabulous things. Remember my notes here. We're made in the image of God, so we are creative in our, in our being in the way that God is. So no matter what, we will stumble through life somehow, you know, like a broken clock, we're right two times a day, and we will stumble into creating beauty and goodness. However, cities are also the places where we can most easily recognize the brokenness and disorder of what happens when we cultivate creation. I think it's one of the reasons all of us like to escape into nature. We want to find the places on earth that that are the least polluted by the order of man. Cities are high in pollution and crime. Disparity of wealth is displayed in an extreme. Have you ever walked down Rodeo Drive and gotten to the end of it? It's not a pretty picture. Cities are where the unhoused fade out of existence on the side of the road as businessmen turn their gaze away from their neighbor. It's where neighborhoods are segregated as people groups are divided. It's where the bacteria of loneliness finds a moist, warm home to grow. It's where greed is celebrated, where modern-day towers of Babel are constructed, where the streets are sticky with chewed gum, and when it rains, the water that flows along the gutters is gray. But God's vision of a city is something different altogether. Everything has been made new. All tribes and tongues and nations live in equality together, diversity in unity. There's enough room for everyone to live in the Father's house so no one lives on the streets. Everyone is called brother and sister so no one is alone. The streets are paved with gold and a river of life flows through the city from the center. And the whole thing is humming with creativity and beauty. 
This is not a concrete jungle in place of a garden. This is a city that celebrates all that was good in the garden and multiplies it. Now, that's the city. But before we move to our final act, we need to talk about heaven and earth. You might have noticed that this heavenly city in Revelation 21 isn't actually called heaven. It's called the new heaven and the new earth. So let's talk about that for a second. What is going on there? In the words of theologian and creator of the Bible Project, Tim Mackey, heaven and earth are ways of talking about God's space and our space. So heaven is God's space. Now we can fire that slide. Boom. Heaven is God's space. Earth is our space, which we have a slide for too. They're distinct, separate from each other, and unlike one another. If they are a Venn diagram, they do not overlap. We often think about what will happen when we die, and the classic model is this, that we die, we leave our space, and we go to be in God's space, a.k.a. we go to heaven, right? Mm, It's not what happens in Revelation 21. Revelation 21, the place we go after we die is called the new heaven and the new earth. Here's the fun part. God's space, heaven, and our space, earth, are not always separate spaces. The vision we get in Revelation 21 is that God's space and our space have overlapped completely. The Venn diagram becomes a circle. We get a vision of human beings dwelling with God in the same space, doing the same things, working together, living harmoniously with humans, continuing to steward a creation perfectly under his rule, which yields the fruit of total human flourishing, aka no more death, no more mourning, no more pain, and no more crying. Life after death is not leaving this space to join God's space. It's God's space merging with our space. But heaven and earth have overlapped completely before. In the garden. In Eden. Seems the goal of God is to have a creation where heaven and earth overlap. Where there's a unity among us and him and where we are made to flourish. It was the original design, and it is the end destination. It is where we started, and it is where we are going. It is the beginning, and it is the end. The whole thing is a circle. Heaven and earth are coming back together at the end, just as they were at the beginning. But we aren't at the end, or the beginning. We're in the squishy middle. The pliable, changeable middle. So let's talk about temples. Act number three. See, the Garden of Eden in the past and the heavenly city in the future aren't the only places where heaven and earth have overlapped. We have this great gap in between those two moments, the middle in which we currently find ourselves. So the question becomes how do heaven and earth interact in the in between? The answer is temples. In the history of God's people, from the exodus out of Egypt onward, the Israelites built temples. And the temple was the place where heaven and earth overlap. 
the place where God's perfect rule is perfectly acted out, where his presence dwells, and where God's people and God can interact, where the Israelites and Yahweh can share the same space. It's an embassy of heaven on earth. It is a finite location where the Venn diagram, Venn diagram of heaven and earth overlap again. We have a slide for it, I think. Next one. Yeah, there we go. This is the Venn diagram of the temple. And here's the fun part. God's instructions for the priests of the temple is the same instruction he gives to Adam and Eve in the garden to work it and to keep it. The temple is adorned with the imagery of a garden. It has a candlestick, the menorah that looks like the tree of life. There are images of angels guarding the entrance to the temple, just as angels guarded Eden. There is a stream of water that flows out of the temple, just as the three great rivers flowed out of the garden. The temple is an image of the garden. Or put another way, the Garden of Eden was a temple. The same imagery repeats when we look at the city in Revelation 21. It has a tree of life with a river of life flowing out of it. The imagery all repeats. We even get a description of the dimensions of the heavenly city as being cube-shaped, just as the holy of holies, the very innermost part of the temple where God dwells, is cube-shaped. The city is a temple. Because the whole world was always supposed to be a temple, shared space between mankind and God. Originally, the world was a temple. One day, the world will be a temple. And for the Israelite people, they literally had a temple, a small shared space between God and man. But temples are a bit limited. Physical destinations with limited access, they're prone to being plundered and destroyed. They're dependent on flawed systems of government, which is why God does something really interesting. Because heaven and earth overlaps once again in the Bible, this time in the person of Jesus. He is shared space between God and man. He is God's will perfectly lived out in human action. He is a walking, talking, living, breathing temple. He is the embodiment of heaven on earth, or maybe better put, heaven in earth. Jesus literally describes his body as a temple. He tells people over and over again when he's walking around, and as they are walking around him, that the kingdom of heaven is close at hand, aka close enough to touch. He prays things like, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He is not subtle about it. But then Jesus takes it a whole step further. He dies for us to cleanse our hearts, bodies, minds, and souls and makes it so that we can turn from our ways, have the Holy Spirit, the very presence of God, come and live inside of us. Just as God dwells inside the temple of the Israelites, he now dwells in you. You, my friends, are temples where heaven and earth are supposed to align shared space between you and God, walking, talking, living, breathing, speaking, healing, restoring temples of the culture, rule, and way of heaven. The calling of a follower of Jesus is to be a physical embodiment of what it looks like when God's rule becomes reality in a person. 
when the kingdom of heaven pours out of you here on earth. You are an embassy of heaven. You are partnering with God not to escape to his space one day, but to pull heaven down onto earth and begin making all things new. In the words of Fatboy Slim, right here, right now. And here's the kicker and where I will end and bring this to a close. Because you don't just become a follower of Jesus and become a perfect embodiment of heaven instantly. Your less perfect city and more wild garden. Your less gold-paved streets and more muddy, overgrown trails through the jungle. Which is why I love that when Jesus is resurrected, he is first mistaken for a gardener. And why in my favorite teaching of Jesus, he talks about us being branches of a vine. In John 15, Jesus says this, I am the true vine, my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will bear even more fruit. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. But if you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples." Just as God has appointed you the steward of creation, called to order it into the image of heaven, you are a creation called to be ordered into the image of heaven. You have a garden to tend to, this world, but your life is also a garden that needs to be tended to by the great gardener. Your life is like a microcosm of what's happening in the, meta, in the meta picture of all of creation. You are a garden created to be good. In you, a rebellion has taken place that has led to brokenness and pain, and you are in need of tending, redeeming, pruning, and cultivating from a once good garden now overgrown with weeds into a beautiful city where heaven and earth align. This is the key to all of it, the whole thing. Is your life, the wild, untamed garden of your soul, submitted completely into the hands of God, your gardener? Does he have permission to cut off the parts of your life that are not healthy, to bless those that are? Is his will as the gardener allowed to be exercised in your life? Maybe today, the end of the year is a good day to ask yourself some tough questions. Even better, if 
you're married, ask your spouse these questions of yourself. If you have a mentor, ask them. If you have a community that you're part of, ask them. If you're taking notes, write these down. These are questions to ask today. Do you trust God's loving rule enough to let him be the gardener of your soul? Is your life ordered in alignment with how God orders the world? What does God need to cut away in your life? And what is the fruit that God wants to grow in your life? If you want the kingdom of heaven to overlap with the reality of our lives, we must submit our lives into the hands of the great gardener. And so I'll end with this quote from our good friend, John Mark Comer, who said, all of what I just took 35 minutes to say, he can do it in about 20 seconds here. Salvation is not so much about you getting into heaven, but God getting heaven into you. It's not about going up there, but heaven coming down here. It's not just about a transaction, but about a transformation and not just about the transformation of an individual soul, you or me, but of entire societies of us. It's not just about what God wants to do for us, but what God wants to do in us. It's not about what happens when you die, but what happens when you live. Will you stand with me?